Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Dr. Kat Scott, Lauren Burton and Laura Wayman join us from the Precy Centre at the University of Leeds. Now, whilst Kat, Lauren and Laura are not in geography, they are from a very similar department, the School of Earth and Environment. Their work is either in or related to climate science, and they're all passionate about science communication. Kat is the director of the Leeds Ecosystem, Atmosphere and Forest, Leaf Centre, which aims to bring together anyone working on forests from across the university. Her work focuses on the interactions between forests and the atmosphere around them. Lauren is a third-year PhD student and is a communications and engagement intern with the Priestley Centre. Her research looks at the climate of the past warm periods in Earth's history and what we can learn from them in terms of current and future climate change. And Laura is a first-year PhD student specialising in the intersection between volcanic eruptions and their climatic and environmental impacts. Her current work is on the atmospheric and environmental behaviours of metals in volcanic aerosol plumes. We're here today to talk about one of the current projects, Ask a Climate Researcher, which aims to better communicate the risks and solutions to climate change. You may notice that one of our guests today has a stammer. In support of Lauren and the British Stammering Association's No Diversity Without Disfluency campaign, we've not edited any instances of stammering in this podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. It's um, great to be here. Lauren, um, can we start with you first? Uh, Tell me about Ask a Climate Researcher. What is it and when did it start? So in short, the Ask a Climate Researcher project is a climate communications and and engagement project that that aims to be informative, to open conversations around climate change and ultimately empower people to take climate action. So the project started back in 2019 when 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 researchers from the Precy Centre went went to some of the youth strikes for climate. So our our researchers hosted stalls where people at at those strikes and and those just walking by could 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 come and ask a climate researcher any questions that they had about climate change and we've we've been asked a whole range of questions since 2019 so last year we we decided to make a series of short series of short videos which answered some of those most frequently asked so this video series is one part of the ask a climate research project and we also can continue to run in-person stalls both at the University of Leeds and around Leeds more generally. And the aim of these stalls is really to promote the research and the resources that have been created by the Priestley Centre on climate change. So we aim for this to be a stall where people can come with any questions that they have, any uncertainties or worries around the climate crisis. And then we do our best to answer those questions and and to facilitate those discussions as well. Uh, So, for example, we do this through a couple of games that we have on the stall. 
uh, where we get people to rank the actions that they can take to reduce emissions. And we find this always really surprises people what the most important actions are. And then we also share links to a great series of videos and resources made by the Ask the Climate Researcher team. And this is for anyone who wants more information than we have with us on the day. So I'll pass to Kat to talk a bit more about these videos. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, so I'm, I was one of the climate researchers who was being asked. So I got involved in the, in the project through the video series that the team were putting together. Lauren and the, and the rest of the team had invited a range of researchers who work on all sorts of different topics across the university to come and speak about, about those in these, these little bite-sized videos that tackle each one individually. And although it's, it's always very daunting to be on camera and being filmed uh, speaking about your work, it was, it was really good actually to be able to contribute to something that was going to reach a wider audience and reach people in a different way than we might normally manage through our research articles and, and kind of normal seminars that we might give. I've watched some of the videos uh, and they are fantastic. We'll put a link to where listeners can find them on the webpage for this podcast. Laura, can we go back to you? What was your role specifically in the project? You've mentioned in-person stalls. Yeah, so I was sort of an, an outreach volunteer on these stalls. Each sort of stall event, maybe there would be sort of five or six of us acting as these volunteers. And we would man the stall for sort of slots throughout the day, sort of try and sort of encourage people to come over and talk to us, to ask them what questions they had about the climate crisis, get them to sort of make a, a pledge, for example, about the actions that they might take and sort of be this um, front-facing engagement for the project. Um, and I think it's been really good because we've had volunteers from a range of different backgrounds coming in. So, for example, if there's a question that I can't answer, I can pass over to someone else who's on the store to have this wider discussion. And is the Ask a Climate Researcher stall uh, set up for open days or do you tour around the country with it? Um, so so, so we've just sort of been in Leeds to this point, although I think, I think there is great scope for like these sort of stalls to be run sort of both UK and like worldwide <laughs> as well. And we like tend to sort of run these stalls at like fairs, so... So one of the stalls we've had this year is is for the university's climate week. So so we sort of try and sort of have like these stalls where where like we know that like we see lots of people and like try and try and get them them to sort of bring in these these conversations around climate change more 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 in like their days. And Kat, you mentioned that you were one of a number of uh, climate researchers who featured in the videos. Can you tell us a little bit about your clip? Yes, yeah, so uh, I did a video about trees and how we might expect them to be able to contribute to, to helping us mitigate climate change. So we know that fundamentally the main thing we need to do is reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases. We need to do that. You know, we need to do it yesterday, basically. That has to be soon and it has to be substantial. But the other thing that we are increasingly thinking about is, is how we can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And that's really where trees come in. And, and so in the episode, I was talking about the sort of the science behind that, why we think trees can, can do that. But also, really, it was important to get across that we can't think of, of planting new forests and, and planting trees as the one solution that's going to kind of get us out of this situation. It can only really be one part of our approach. And so 
it was important to kind of try and put the role that trees can play into into the, the wider context. Lauren, I guess the overarching question that you're trying to answer through videos with CAT, for example, is how we can best communicate the different behaviours related to climate change without confusing people. Can we go straight to that point? And is there an answer? Have you have you worked it out? I would say that we sort of know know much more about it now than how we perhaps would have approached these 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 sorts of con conversations five or ten years ago. So I so I would say that like the most important thing when like we talk about climate change is to, is to know your your audience and then and then to adapt your con your uh, your conversations to make sure that you really you really engage them so so if you are talking to a, a client to a climate a scientist for example then 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 sure it might work to sort of list off like stats and facts and figures about green about greenhouse gas emissions or chain or changes to the atmosphere but actually climate change is such is such an important issue that that we need to engage everyone and everyone needs needs to be informed and feel and feel empowered to act so the aim should be to engage with people and and their own pers- personal interests and make climate change relevant to them so do they like gardening for example and might and my and my they have to change like the seeds they plant at like uh, like each time of year or do, or do they live live in an area that that is threatened by sea uh, sea level rise so they might have to install flood defenses or 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 move to a different air move to a different air rear completely and not only that but also the the medium by which we communicate so some people may respond well to sort of these facts and figures but other people may need to see see a piece of art or like a dance performance or read or read some poetry to sort of really feel inspired at our in person stalls we've we've got some small some small books of climate related poetry and they always go down very well so i think that i think the main thing is 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 uh, trying to find out what inspires someone and then and then showing them how 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 they can make how they can make a difference because we don't need need uh, need to do it all but 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 we all need need to and can do something by using the skills and the interests that we already have 
Yeah, I completely agree with Lauren on that. I think it's crucial to approach climate communication from a place of active listening. So not trying to sort of reel off a a list of facts and bullet points to someone, but actually trying to find out more about their background and their concerns and then building the conversation from there. And I think a great way to do this, as Lauren said, is, is to try and link to an issue that they already invested in and that they already care about. So, for example, if somebody is already concerned about their local air quality or green spaces or food security or supporting refugees, we can link all of these issues to the climate crisis. And perhaps more excitingly, we can also find intersectional solutions that address all of these issues. And I think that can be a real source of hope that hopefully overcomes some of the inertia when we're talking about taking action on climate change. What do we need to be wary of when communicating as educators? Yeah, so communicating on the climate crisis uh, can be really hard, particularly because everyone is approaching it from such different backgrounds and perspectives. As Lauren touched on earlier, what engages one person might turn someone else off completely. So I think another thing that we should be very mindful of when we're communicating, particularly the science of the climate crisis, um, and one of the biggest sticking points, in my opinion, is how we communicate uncertainty. So, for example, scientists might use the word uncertainty to describe maybe the range of temperature values we might expect to see if we emit a certain amount of greenhouse gases over the next 50 years. And this doesn't mean at all that we're uncertain that temperatures will rise to some extent. And it certainly doesn't mean that the science behind why temperatures will rise isn't robust. But I think sometimes this uncertainty can be taken out of context in many different ways. So whether that's focusing too much on the fact that there is uncertainty to argue that we don't know enough to act, or even on the flip side, I think sometimes not acknowledging this uncertainty enough can feed into a more sort of doomist view that we're, we're certainly on the brink of collapse. So I think communicating this uncertainty in a way that's accessible, in a way that's responsible, is incredibly important, but can also be really challenging. Uh, Lauren, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, it, it, definitely and and this all so feeds in feeds in to the message that that um, that we want to get across so we know that tactics have changed from sort of this outright a, a denial of climate change more more towards the delaying of taking action and and also towards doomism and this doomism can be just as dangerous as outright a denial of climate change because it can be a very scary and and almost paralyze you from taking action. And it's sort of key here that that you can't be scared or shamed in to taking climate action. And in fact, re 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 such shows that one of the one of the best ways to one of the best ways to avoid doomism and to remain hopeful is 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 to actually take climate climate action. This then becomes a sort of positive cycle where 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 you feel e- even more hopeful uh, because you are doing some doing something to 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 try and tackle climate change and this then spreads to those to those around you so 
so don't so don't just sit around and sort of wait and wait to wait to feel hopeful and go out and sort of actively seek and make this hope and I think sort of linked to this is is every climate story we see in the media and in every class or lecture that we that we give should 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 either include or link to resources that 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 both inform and inspire climate action which then can in turn make us feel more hopeful and less likely to sort of get sucked in to these feelings of doom or climate anxiety you've just reminded me there of a great book i read last year and we've done some work on called big gases small effect by a couple of german academics um called christian sarah and um david nels and it was exactly on that point lauren about not being sucked into the doomism and trying to actively seek out and be positive about solutions to climate change Kat, you mentioned earlier that we need to get emissions down, clearly. Can you tell me some of the ideas out there that can do this? Um, and I'm going to turn that back onto the listener. As you listen to Kat, can you think about what you can do and then do it after you've heard her response? Yeah, so I, I, there's a couple of things here. Because I guess one of the issues is that for a lot of people, um, you know, our lives are really complicated, we do so many different things. And actually, for most people, it's quite difficult to know which parts of your lifestyle are really contributing the most in terms of greenhouse gas emissions most things that we do will be will be contributing in some way but if that applies to you and you're not really sure where to start it's a good idea to have a look at something like a a carbon calculator or an environmental footprint calculator there's lots of them online and most of the time you can just answer a few simple questions and it'll give you a kind of a breakdown of of where most of the greenhouse gas emissions in your lifestyle are are coming from and um, WWF have a particularly good one so you can you can search for that online and, and that will give you some ideas about things you can you can do to try and reduce your emissions but the fact that the best thing to do as an individual is going to be a bit different for everyone it doesn't mean that there aren't some some kind of broad broad brush things that actually will help no matter who you are so things like reducing the amount of meat and dairy in your diet is always going to help that that will get your your kind of food footprint down and generally trying to consume less, not in terms of food, but just in terms of products that you buy. So either getting secondhand things, trying to rent things rather than buy them for the first time. So just kind of using less, basically. And in the UK, actually, our biggest emissions sector collectively it comes from transport. And so the, and the majority of that is on road vehicles. So this means that for, for any of us, reducing the amount of kind of individual car journeys you take is, is always going to be a good place to start if you've got a, a petrol or a diesel car. And buying an electric car isn't necessarily an option that's open to everyone at the moment. So thinking about transport, it's a good example of where individually you can have the motivation and you can really want to make a difference and, and, and get your emissions down by reducing journeys or reducing journeys in your car. But actually having the public transport infrastructure there to support that and enable people to make that decision is a bit of a, a postcode lottery at the moment in the UK as to, to, to how kind of feasible that is. So I think that's a good example really of where we need the sort of public pressure from individuals to kind of say we want to make this choice but at the moment we can't because those services aren't there and it's that kind of sort of collective voice that will enable some of the, the changes that need to happen at a larger scale to enable people to make that that choice in their kind of day-to-day lives. 
Laura, when the videos uh, went online, I especially liked the response. The best way to tackle climate change is to understand who's making money from it and to take the fight to them. Um, do you have a number one response or number one video? Of course, cats, but anyone else's? <laughs> of course. Yeah, so I, I really liked um, the part in the video where we touch on working this from across a whole range of levels to address these issues and, and find solutions. So I would say sort of along with the individual actions that Katz just mentioned, it's also important to address the, the structural and the systemic issues that are contributing to the climate crisis. And often these extend way beyond us as individuals, even if they still impact us as individuals. And I think this is really where both the power and the beauty of collective action comes in. And this can come in, in many different forms, from protesting and direct action, from local groups coming together to put pressure on more local issues, or even just through online communities working internationally. And I think it's this sort of growing sense of public engagement and pressure for solutions that's important for setting the political agenda that we need higher up to drive these systemic solutions. So I think being part of collective action in some way is just also a lovely way to, to find friends and, and to combat some of the anxiety and the loneliness that can come with facing the climate crisis. And I know that this has really sort of transformed how I've been feeling about the climate crisis, being involved in more collective action, like the Ask a Climate Research Project. Kat, Laura's mentioned collective action there. Um, she's talked about public action and a political agenda. Um, is the solution legislation then? I think um, it's important to remember that nothing is going to be the sole solution to to the problem that we've got but I do think legislation is important to have firstly because the legislation itself and the detail it contains can be really useful specifically in, in driving change to, to happen but also because it means then that citizens uh, and, and organisations have the power to kind of hold their governments to account if they aren't meeting the legally binding commitments they've laid out in the legislation so I'm not really sure how aware people are of this, but in the UK, we have something called the Climate Change Act. It was first established in, in 2008, and it was actually at the time the, the first legally binding climate change mitigation legislation um, set by any country in the world. So when, when it first came into being, the target was to reduce our emissions by 80% by 2050. So that's relative to what they were in 1990. But then um, a few years ago, it was updated to say that we're going to reduce them by 100%. So that's basically this net zero level of emissions. So we've, we've reduced our emissions by, by all of, uh, of, of what they are. But one of the crucial things about this legislation is that it's not just about thinking about 2050. It actually sets out these, or it requires the government of the day to be setting these kind of five-year carbon budgets and having a plan for how it's going to meet them. And so last year, there was actually a high court ruling about the government's most recent climate policy that it published called the Net Zero Strategy. And some campaigners had said that they didn't think that actually the strategy contained enough detail to be meeting the legal requirements that the government had to kind of demonstrate that it had a robust plan to, to meet this, this carbon budget. And, and actually the, the judge kind of ruled in, in their favour um, on, on that particular issue. And so there is now, there has been a kind of a legal challenge where it's meant that then the government had to kind of go away and, and issue an updated strategy to sort of convince everyone more robustly that actually they do have a plan for how they're going to meet those emission reductions targets. And I think without that 
being kind of legally binding legislation, there would have been no kind of means to, to, to make that happen. We've missed the 1.5 degree target, some are now saying. Is that true? Yeah, so I think the first thing to acknowledge when we read headlines that like that is that they are really scary. And to a certain extent, the media love a sort of sensationalist headline. But certainly when I first sort of saw reports of this coming out, my stomach dropped a bit and I was like, oh, gosh, you know. But I think actually it's really important to acknowledge, first of all, the, the 1.5 to 2.5, in some ways, are sort of arbitrary round numbers that we've chosen. And that just because we might pass 1.5, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't aim for 1.6 or 1.7 or 1.8. Really, the, the driving aim is just to keep the warming to the lowest number that we can. So if we do pass 1.5, like at no point should that be a signal to give up. Um, and really, every point of a degree really does count in terms of minimising the severity of the impacts that we might expect with this warming. Absolutely. And the frame, the framing of this 1.5 degree target which 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 comes from the which comes from the Paris agreement of 2015 is is crucial and uh, the media have a huge responsibility to report it accurately um, and uh, from and from a scientific perspective it's important to remember as well that the climate varies and, and naturally both but both within and between years so you so you may have heard of el nino events for example and during el el nino years the global average temperature is higher than what than what would normally be expected so because of a phenomena like this we may we may exceed 1.5 degrees of warming for one year but this does not necessarily mean that we've missed the 1.5 degree target uh, because climate science works on works on longer time scales than that and this is why it's so important as Laura said for the aim to be for the aim to be to limit warming to the lowest possible level and to not give up hope if we do meet or exceed that 1.5 degree target. The aim is certainly to limit warming to the lowest possible level. Kat, what are your hopes then for Ask a Climate Researcher? So I I think this is such a kind of varied set of videos, at least from the part that I was involved with, uh, and they're all available on, on YouTube now already. So it's my hope really that that kind of series of videos can take on a bit of a life of its own and because it's there and it's available, other people that we, you know, we've been sharing it lots with people, but other people that we don't know could find it and start using it and, and sharing the videos whenever they want to communicate about climate change because each one is, is so short it can be just kind of used as an introductory you know, snapshot into a particular issue. So we'll keep sharing it, but I think really we want to kind of get the message out that it's there and it's, it's for everyone to use. So what do you hope for, Laura? Yeah, so I, I guess I hope that the, the breadth of people that we can engage with continues to expand, particularly in communities that are directly related to the university. And I think to do this, we're going to have to employ using even more diverse platforms and, and mediums to do this. 
So I'd love to see some more artistically driven projects being set up. Um, and if anyone has any ideas for this, we'd love to hear them. Finally, Lauren and anyone else, um, what's in store for the project? Is it to be extended? Is there a phase two? So the project is growing all all the time, which is which is really exciting. Um, so we've so we've we've already made a standalone video on the the connection between the climate crisis and the cost of living crisis. And we've also made two further mini video series. One of these looked at COP27, the the large climate conference in in November of last year, and and the key themes which were to be discussed at this conference. And the second mini series is with Chris Stark, the chief the chief executive of the UK's climate change committee. And this sort of looks more looks more towards the policy and the legislation side of things. But I think the key is that this that this project is sort of built upon engagement with with people like you and everyone listening. So 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 we'd really love to hear your questions which 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 may be included in a future series. So watch this space um you you can get involved with the project by you by using the hashtag ask a climate researcher on social media and also find out more on our website which is climate.leads.ac.uk Kat, lauren and laura thank you very much for joining us today thanks for having us thanks for listening If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.